Hi, everybody. Steve Matthews here. Thanks for joining me for Radio Looks Lucid, episode 38. The title of this episode is Walter Williams Remembered. Well, there was some sad news this past week. One of my personal heroes uh, died on Monday, December the 1st, and I'm talking here about uh, Dr. Walter Williams. Uh, Dr. Williams was a, an economist and was a professor for many years at George Mason University in Virginia. Uh, but he, he was not, wasn't just an academic. He was also somebody who is, was very well known as a public intellectual. And if, if say, you were someone who's in the liberty movement or a liberty-minded person and maybe a libertarian or maybe you're a conservative or, or something along those lines, the name Walter Williams is probably one that you, you recognize. Because he wrote a, a newspaper column for many years, probably about 40 years or so. And he was also pretty well known as uh, one of Rush Limbaugh's regular guest hosts. It always seemed like, if I recall correctly, that he would would fill in for Rush maybe the week Christmas between Christmas and New Year's was was uh, typically one of the, the times of year that, that Walter Williams would sit behind the uh, the EIB microphone and uh, and uh, – School people in uh, in sound economics. So, and, and though it was, it's it's sad to hear of his passing this past week. I, I didn't want to make this a a sad show, but really more as uh, really to to just honor someone that I think uh, have thought very highly of for most of my life, and and to to uh, give you a little bit of sense of the man and. Um, how he uh, he actually mentored me. Now I say I never I never knew him personally. I never was a student of his. I never sat in a classroom with him. But yet he really did teach me, and he taught me a, an awful lot about economics at um, a really a very uh, important kind of impressionable time in my life. It made a big difference to me, and so that's why I just wanted to. I really think of this episode more as just a just a public uh, public thank you. Uh, to uh, to Dr. Williams for for all of the uh, the wonderful work that uh, that he did and and the, how much his work has meant to me over over many years. Uh, there's a uh, a uh, an article, I guess it was a yeah, it was a write up, and if you call it an obituary, maybe a write up would be more like it in in the New York Times that was done. Uh, in fact, it was just today, December the 4th. Uh, I'll read a little bit of that to you here. So uh, here we go. Quote, Walter E. Williams, 84 dies, conservative economist on black issues. Skeptical of anti-poverty programs, he was a scholar who reached a wide public through a newspaper column and books and as a fill-in for Rush Limbaugh. Now, let me just read a little bit of this. This is actually a pretty good write-up. I mean, it's in the New York Times, so I mean, they're not uh, the the kind of people who would necessarily be favorable to uh, to Walter Williams's views. If you uh, are familiar with Walter Williams, of course, he was somebody who believed in in free market and laissez-faire economics, capitalism, uh, and he was also somebody who believed in limited government. So he had a a very biblical view of of economics uh, and politics, and and I don't know for sure. I I, um, I I strongly suspect he was a Christian himself. I know I I heard him make uh, numerous references to to church and church related things over the years, and I, I I very strongly suspect he was a Christian. And I I do I do know in terms of his writings, in terms of his beliefs about economics and, and politics, they certainly were were consistent. Um, with the scriptures. Uh, before I get started here, I also wanted to say hi to everybody on live stream. This is my second uh, go at live stream. You know, it, it was funny. Um, I, I did the uh, the first one was on. Uh 
uh, always on Thanksgiving. And I, I was trying out a new program. Actually, I had live streamed on Twitter a couple, a few times before that. But I got this new program. It, it's called uh, Restream, and it lets you stream across a number of different platforms all at once. Well, I got the thing all set up, and I was I was going, and I was having a pretty good time uh, with the. Uh, the the Thanksgiving episode, and I got done. At, at the end of it, I saw that somebody had sent me a message, and he said something like, "Dude, your your audio's off." So I was sitting here uh, yammering on for about forty five minutes, and and it wasn't any sound. Fortunately, I did record it as a podcast, so I, I did get I did get the audio on another device. But uh, that uh, that was well. You know, you know, doing uh, podcasting and and blogging and writing things like that. It it has its humbling moments. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one for me. So I think I've got the audio on this week. I learned how to how to check that. So hopefully, if if you don't hear me and you're watching out there, you be, be please be kind enough to to drop me a uh, a chat and uh, and let me know. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so uh, back to the article here. This is uh, the uh, the New York Times. Excuse me. <coughs> this is the New York Times write up on uh, on Walter Williams. Walter E. Williams, a prominent conservative economist, author, and political commentator who expressed profoundly skeptical views of government efforts to aid his fellow African Americans and other minority groups, died on Tuesday on the campus of George Mason University in Virginia, where he taught for 40 years. He was 84. His daughter, Devin Williams, said he died suddenly in his car after he had finished teaching a class. She said he had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and hypertension. As a public intellectual, Mr. Williams moved easily between the classroom and public forums that gave him a wide reach. He wrote a syndicated column, lectured across the country, and frequently appeared on the radio as a substitute host for the ardently conservative Rush Limbaugh. The author of about a dozen books, including The State Against Blacks, Mr. Williams was a subject of a 2014 PBS documentary, Suffer No Fools, in which he maintained that anti-poverty programs were subsidizing slovenly behavior. The welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery could not have done, Jim Crow, and the harshest racism could not have done, namely to destroy the black family, Mr. Williams declared in Suffer No Fools. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a flavor of, of Walter Williams. And one of the things that, maybe just to, to tell you a little bit about him, just from my own personal experience, you know, when I was, was growing up, and this is back when I went to school, I graduated high school in 1984. And when I was going to school and growing up, I went to public school. You know, I'm a product of public school, okay? And I went to public school my my whole life. And going through public education, you know, you, you kind of got this sense. I mean, and nobody stated this explicitly, but you kind of got this sense that if you had any ambition, say, of being a, a scholar, uh, you know, a, a serious scholar in, in, in any field, that that you really had to adopt a set of beliefs that were at odds with Christianity. You know, you had to be you had to be a Darwinist in, in terms of of your uh, your thinking about uh, about uh, the uh, about mankind. You had to to be a uh, you know some kind of a uh, a collectivist in terms of your economics. You had to be uh, a big government guy in terms of of your politics. Now, again, nobody ever explicitly stated this. It was more implicit in the kind of education we received because, of course, when you're talking about public education, what you're doing is you're talking about government education. So, I mean, of course, you're going to get an education that favors what? Big government. And I always got this sense that that when I was was going to school that I wasn't really being taught straight, that I wasn't getting a straight scoop. 
but I didn't know what the truth was, and and I was was very confused, and, and I was very frustrated. And in fact, um, I was a was a pretty crummy student when when I was in high school, and, and part of it was because I just I didn't trust the kinds of things that I was being taught. It, it just didn't. It, it didn't seem quite right to me, but if you if you'd really pressed me on the issues, I would have had a hard time really articulating for you why why I thought that. Um, but but I, I tended not to have a whole lot of interest in in academics, and I, I did very poorly when I was in high school. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I don't say that as a boast. I'm not happy about it. I, I wish that I had had handled things differently. But but no, I, I didn't do well. And part of the reason was was just because I found the the intellectual climate the the uh the atmosphere the the ideas that were put forth um they, they didn't have a lot of appeal to me and i always wanted to believe i i don't know maybe this was this is the lord's leading in in my life here i wasn't a christian at the time but i always believed in in I wanted to believe in liberty. I wanted to believe in in freedom, in in economic freedom, in political freedom. But I just wasn't seeing that in in the the teaching that I was getting. So anyway, um, I remember I first came across Walter Williams' work. I want to say about 1984. So it was about the same year that that I graduated high school, and the, the uh, local newspaper, the Cincinnati Enquirer, carried his weekly syndicated column, and I started reading uh, his stuff, and, and I was just just blown away by it. Um, you know, as I said, the the general uh, kind of intellectual atmosphere then, as, is, as, it, as it is now, is a sort of, uh, sort of a big government type of socialism. But, but Walter Williams was just like, uh, it was like a bolt of lightning out of the blue. He was so different from anybody else I had ever read up to that point. Um, you know, he was somebody who would write very uh, powerfully, very uh, clearly, very um, in, in, very logically, um, and, and defend freedom, and defend limited government, and defend um, you know economic liberty, and and I was just absolutely amazed and blown away by it. And and one of the things that that really captured me the most, of course, is that, that Walter Williams was black, and and yet he would write columns that would just. He would just just flay the, the the received wisdom of the day. You know, there there was always this idea. Oh well, you know that 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 blacks aren't doing well in this or that area, and and it's all because of racism. It's all because of white racism. It's 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 white racism that that is to blame for this. And I'd read Walter Williams. He'd say, No, it's 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 not white racism that's that's doing this. It's socialism. It's the welfare state. And in fact, let me go ahead. I'm going to read that quote again. This is from a quote from the New York Times. And I know this must have been kind of painful for them to print this. <laughs> so I'm going to read it again. This is Walter Williams. Quote, The welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery could not have done, Jim Crow, and the harshest racism could not have done, namely to destroy the, the black family. End quote. That was a quote from that uh, PBS special, Suffer No Fools. By the way, that, that PBS special they talk about, it's about an hour-long special uh, on featuring Walter Williams. And it's actually, it's available on Amazon. So if you have Amazon, if you've got Amazon Prime, it actually comes with your Amazon subscription. So if, if you have that, go check it out. Uh, I, I strongly recommend it to you. I always, always love uh, it, hearing, uh, hearing Walter Williams talk about, uh, about economics. It's, it, and if you've never heard him before, um, you're in for a real treat. I, I just, I've always uh, loved his work so much. But, but I would read things like this. 
And and it was just it was just shocking. Like I say, it was like a bolt of of lightning out of the blue. And it was like, who is this guy? And and, and where does he get these ideas? And and I, I was was very keen to to learn. And, and I say this was at a time in my life that you know, as you know, senior in high school or was was going into college. And so those are very intellectually formative years. And you know, for me, reading his work really kind of reawakened or maybe awakened for the first time, really the interest in, in scholarly things from my standpoint, because like I say, I, I had this idea growing up that if you had to be a scholar, well, you had to be some kind of, you know, socialist liberal, you know, what have you. Um, and I think there was a lot of truth in that, actually. There's certainly a lot of truth then. And of course, if you look at the way universities and, and uh, formal academics is today, uh, that really is true. I mean, you have to have, a you have to kind of accept the the worldview of the uh the secular liberals and, and that's something that that I was never comfortable with and but yeah here I'm reading someone who's you know a PhD economist uh, and a college professor and man I mean he's just 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 flaying the received wisdom and it was just a, it was always so much fun to to read him and and to read him uh, and to see him you know skewer the uh, the received wisdom uh, i always enjoyed that but but in reading him and in learning from him i say it, it for the first time in my life kind of began to awaken interest in uh, in scholarship because i began to see that yeah you could be a scholar and not only could you defend liberty, but but it was you could make a pretty compelling intellectual argument for that. In fact, you could make a much better argument for for liberty and freedom than you could for all the the big government social welfare programs that were out there. So that that was one of the the big takeaways that I got from from Walter Williams and, and from his work over the years was just the fact that that good scholarship can really be used to support. Liberty. Now, I wasn't even a scripturalist at the time. You know, when I talk about scripturalism, I'm talking about the work of particularly of Gordon Clark and, and John Robbins. And this was years before I even read their stuff. But it, his work, Walter Williams' work actually kind of helped me, helped prepare me for, for reading uh, some of the work of, uh, of Gordon Clark and, and John Robbins, uh, much later on. It was probably about another 18 years or so. Um, it wasn't until about the year 2000 or so that I actually started to read, uh, read Clark and Robbins. But this was in, you know, say about 1984 or so when I started reading Walter Williams. So anyway, going through the, uh, this article a little bit, let me read a little bit more of that. Uh, here, here's a kind of give you a little fl more flavor of, of Walter Williams. He argued, that's he, Walter Williams, argued that many well-intentioned government programs, including the minimum wage and a law that in effect mandates union wages on federal construction projects, hurt disadvantaged Americans, particularly black people. In an influential essay, Minimum Wage, Maximum Folly, published in 2007, he argued that a minimum wage, it was $5.85 at the time, came with legally mandated fringe benefits such as employer payments for Social Security, Medicare, unemployment compensation, and worker compensation programs at federal and state levels that run as high as 30% of the hourly wage. And Williams goes on to say, quote, put oneself in the place of an employer and ask, does it make sense for me to hire a worker who is so unfortunate as to have skills enabling him to produce $4 worth of value per hour when he's going to cost me $8 an hour? Most employers would see doing so a losing economic proposition and not hire such a worker, end quote. Well, 
duh. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing, though, that, you know, Walter Williams, you know, he makes this point. He makes it very powerfully, right? I mean, if, if you're, uh, say, an employee, maybe you've got limited skills for whatever reason. Maybe it's your first job, for example. And somebody hires you on and maybe you only produce $4 an hour, but they got to pay you $8 an hour. Well, who's going to do that? I mean, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting a, getting a job there like that. You know, and what minimum wage does is it, 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 it hurts low skill employees because they can't find employment. You know, it hurts people who are, you know, looking for an entry level job because they can't find a job that will pay them at a, at a, at a rate that, um, that their skills justify. Yeah. And that, that's a pretty compelling, pretty compelling argument. And yet there's, there are, are so many people, and we're talking about PhD economists at some of the most prestigious universities in the United States or around the world, uh, who argue that, yeah, I mean, minimum wage is, is a great idea. And, and what that is, of course, is that that's government interference in the economy. And, of course, one of the biggest sources of that interference, and we've talked about that, uh, I think, a little bit in, in my, my podcast. I know I've written quite a bit about it. But one of the biggest sources of that interference is is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you know, Walter Williams didn't say that. He, I don't. He didn't. That's not in the uh, the New York Times article, and I, I don't know that he necessarily said that in his columns. I'm saying that that's where that comes from. A lot of that comes from the influence of of Roman Catholic economic thought, which is is very collectivist. So let's continue on here with the New York Times article. Mr. Williams contended that the civil rights legislation championed by President Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960s had actually worsened race relations by seeking an equality of result in terms of voting rights and bans on discrimination rather than equality of economic opportunity, which he said might better have lifted more black Americans out of poverty and dependence on public welfare programs. Oh my goodness. I mean, now this was something, again, this is one of the things when early on when I began reading Walter Williams work that I, I was just floored by it. As I mentioned, you know, Walter Williams uh, himself was black and, you know, I mean, I was used to the kind of the standard issue mainstream stuff that you'd see on, on TV uh, or reading newspapers, right? I mean, you know, guys like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton. I mean, those were some prominent civil rights uh, advocates at the time. You know, and, and they, they were always into, you know, bigger government programs, you know, more laws compelling people to do this, that, and the other thing. And I, I just, I thought that that, well, you know, I, I, I guess that's what, what black Americans really think. That's what they want. And Walter Williams comes, <laughs> comes along and he just blows that stuff out of the water. And I thought, I, I've never seen anything like this. And, and again, you know, this, this is very, t very uh, good summary of, of Walter Williams argument, you know, that, that all of these, you know, so many of these civil rights laws that try to impose things like, you know, quotas and what have you uh, on employers and on the workforce create a lot of uh, a lot of ill will. And not only do they create all does it create a lot of ill will, it actually holds uh, holds creates problems for black Americans who are trying to advance. It, it actually in a lot of ways hurts people that supposedly uh, it's out there to help. And it's interesting, it goes on here, it says that uh, he, again, Walter Williams, had his critics on the liberal side in 1981 in a, in a Q&A face-off uh, with Mr. Williams in the opinion pages of the New York Times. Benjamin Hooks, then president of the NAACP at that time, was unsparing in his assessment of black conservatives like Mr. Williams. 
And he goes on, and, and, and uh, this Benjamin Hooks criticizes uh, criticizes Williams. He says, black conservatives are basically a carbon copy of white, white conservatives. They object to affirmative actions designed to overcome preferences long accorded to white males. They object to busing as one effective remedy for rectifying a school system that has been deliberately and historically segregated, etc., etc. And he continues here. Well, the... The problem with so many of the uh, with the liberals is is that they always think that somehow getting government involved in things and forcing people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do is the way to go. But Walter Williams had a consistent philosophy of liberty. He had a consistent philosophy of liberty. You, know, you think think about what Jesus said. You know, Jesus said, "You know, if the Son of Man shall make you free, you shall be free indeed." Liberty is, that's something that we find in the scriptures. We find economic liberty. We find political liberty. Now, that quote that I gave you from Christ, I mean, of course, he was talking there about spiritual liberty. Spiritual liberty is the fountainhead of political and, and economic liberty. Now, again, I'm I'm filling in some things here. I don't know that, that Walter Williams necessarily openly talked about that or not. Maybe he did. I, I haven't read everything that, that he, he wrote. Um but uh, but but liberty is something that is it, it's God given. It, it, it's a gift of God, and Walter Williams understood the importance of political and economic liberty to help people to uh, to help people to grow, to help people to develop, to help people to to learn and have an opportunity to apply their their God given gifts uh, and their talents. Um, you don't get to to a place of uh, of success. You, you you don't have a I guess what I'm trying to say here is is that nobody can give you prosperity. I mean, you, you try to give people stuff, you try to give people free stuff, what it ends up doing is destroying them. And that, that's one of the things that, that Walter Williams argued uh, quite a bit. I mean, you find it's just consistently in his columns you know, that – um, government uh, anti-poverty programs, the government affirmative action programs, things like this, even if they were well-intentioned, I mean, even assuming the best of intentions on the part of the people who, who initiated them, that they actually ended up hurting the very people that they were supposed to help. And uh, I remember, and, and I don't have the, the column here handy uh, with me, but I do recall uh, reading in, uh, in one, of, uh, one of Walter Williams' columns, he was talking about growing up. And he grew up in the, the housing projects in North Philadelphia, and, and he was born in 1936. So he grew up, he's pretty close to the same age as my parents. He grew up in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, in that particular period of time. And, you know, that was in the time, that was the pre-civil rights era. So there was a lot of pretty overt discrimination that was going on, that was taking place against blacks. But one of the things that was interesting in, in listening to him talk about his experience growing up he, it, it was uh, it was really quite remarkable because you know you think today of of the uh, you know housing projects and it immediately conjures up you know images of you know drug addicts and shootings and prostitution and you know and all this kind of very depraved sorts of things. But when you listen to him talk, it sounded almost like a you know, call almost like a like an all American neighborhood. Yeah, you know, he talked about the fact that that you know with with he and all of his friends that. He was the only one that didn't have both parents at home. His uh, father left his mother uh, when he was uh, was very young. But all of his other friends, their parents were married. 
You know, they, they were intact families. You know, they would go out. He, I remember reading him talking about how they'd go out and, you know, they'd camp out in the, the yard at, at night and, and, and nobody would think anything of it. And, and they got a good quality education um, when, when he was, was growing up as well. And, you know, it sounded like it was pretty normal American neighborhood. And this was in the, the housing project, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s. And, of course, you compare what he experienced growing up, you know, before all of the, the great society social welfare programs came along in the 60s. It was a very, very different world than, than the one that we live in today, you know, after all of those, those social welfare programs, um, you know, came along, and, you know, the, the so-called great society of, of Lyndon Johnson. And, and that was one of the, the the recurring themes of his work was how welfare had destroyed the black families. And it wasn't just black families he'd talk about either. Welfare destroys any families. You know, there, there's no quicker way to destroy the moral fiber, the industriousness of any people than to put them on the dole and put them on the government dole to say, you deserve free stuff. You, you have entitlements. Yeah. You, you could, could sum up uh, a pretty good chunk of Walter Williams work is, you know, the, uh, is sort of a, uh, a career uh, making war on the word entitlement. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he had a view, uh, and this was a very biblical view of, of the race relationship between work and money. You know, you think about what the apostle Paul wrote. He said, you know, if a man will not work, neither let him eat. You know, and of course you say that today and, you know, people tend to recoil at horror. Oh my gosh, you can't be that cruel. How can you be so terrible? Well, I mean, that's what the Bible teaches, you know, and that, that is also very sound economics. And, and that's what, that is, is what Walter Williams also uh, taught in uh, in his uh, his public work, and I'm sure he probably did in the classroom as well. I just I know him from the the work that he did publicly as a uh, as a writer, as a columnist, or as a, a author of books, or as a radio talk show host. I know he always supported the idea that people had a responsibility to work. You know, and and if they wanted something that that you know it was if if you wanted something your job you had to go out and you had to to work for it you didn't have a right to sit and claim oh you know I've been you know disadvantaged or discriminated against or something like this now you owe me free stuff uh, because of course that's very much uh, in vogue it was it was in vogue back in the 1980s when I first started reading Walter Williams that was very much. Uh, mainstream in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson was president. And of course, um, it's uh, gone hyper-nuclear in our own day. I mean, that's, you know, if, if you don't think that, that, say, giving out reparations, for example, is a great idea, well, you're, you're a really terrible person. But I mean, that's the, very, that's the very kind of thing that Walter Williams opposed throughout his career consistently. In fact, it even says here, Mr. Williams also opposed affirmative action programs and proposals to pay reparations to black people for slavery. The problems that black people face are not going to be solved by white people, he said. And, and that's true. I mean, the only way, the only way that you're ever going to get anything is you have to go out and, and you have to, to apply yourself. You're not going to, you know, nobody can give you a career. Nobody can give you skills. Those are things that you have to go out and you have to apply yourself. And if you have the sense that somehow you're entitled and that somebody owes you something just because of who you are, well, you're going to find you're not going to get very far in your life and you're probably going to be pretty bitter. So, And uh, the article goes on to talk about how he uh, became a, an economist. He actually uh, got his PhD from from UCLA. 
out in uh, out in Los Angeles, and and it also goes on to talk about he came uh, he returned to uh, to Philadelphia where he grew up. He taught at Temple University for from 1973, and then in 1980 he moved on to George Mason University. Uh, he was also a, an adjunct scholar at the uh, the Cato Institute. That's a, a li- excuse me, it's a libertarian think tank. And uh, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to put this article in the show notes. I know the uh, the New York Times. I mean, you do have to have a sub- subscription to get to it. But if you do have one, um, you can go ahead and read the write up. It's actually, like I say, it's it's uh, it's quite a good uh, write up. You know, it's it's better than I would expect from the New York Times because, of course, philosophically, Walter Williams is very different from the editorial staff of the New York Times. And uh, just to give you another flavor of of the. Uh, of uh, Walter Williams' work, there's a a recent column. This was uh, maybe a oh I don't know a, a couple. No, it was back actually September 23rd, so a little bit uh, a little bit over two months ago. It's a uh, a column that he wrote. I'm getting this from Town Hall, and I'm going to put this in the show notes as well. But it's called Language and Thought. And and here's Williams writing. He says, 17th century poet and intellect John Milton predicted when language in common. You, Use in any country becomes irregular and depraved, it is followed by the ruin and degradation. Gore Vidal, his 20th century intellectual successor, elaborated, saying, As societies grow decadent, the language grows decadent too. Words are used to disguise, not to illuminate. Sloppy language permits people to get away with speaking and doing all manner of destructive nonsense without being challenged. And uh, he continues, Williams does, Let's look at the concept of white privilege. The notion that white people have benefited in American history relative to and at the expense of people of color, uh, that's what white privilege is, it appears to be utter nonsense to suggest that poor and destitute Appalachian whites have white privilege. How can one tell if a person has white privilege? One imagines that the academic elite who coined the term refer to whites of a certain socioeconomic status, such as living in the suburbs with the privilege of high-income amenities. But here's the question. Do Nigerians in the U.S. have white privilege? As reported by the New York Post this summer, 17% of all Nigerians in this country hold master's degrees, 4% hold a doctorate, and 37% hold a bachelor's degree, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's 2006 American Community Survey. By contrast, 19% of whites have a bachelor's degree, 8% have have master's degrees, and 1% have doctorates. What about slavery? Colleges teach our young people that the U.S. became rich on the backs of free black labor. That is utter nonsense. Slavery does not have a very good record of producing wealth. Think about it. Slavery was all over the South and outlawed in most of the North. I doubt that anyone would claim that the antebellum South was rich and the slave-starved North was poor. The truth is just the opposite. In fact, the poorest states and regions of our country were places where slavery, slavery flourished. Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia while the richest states and regions were those where slavery was outlawed, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. And, and again, the, the column continues. It's really good stuff. I'm going to go ahead and put that in uh, in the show notes as well. But that just goes to show you, again, that gives you a, kind of a sense of, of the flavor of his argumentation and, and how he could um, – could really refute so many of those arguments that that we hear. I mean, you you watch the news, you <coughs> you hear uh, hear people talk, and you hear that that term white privilege. I mean, that's that's a very common, almost a buzzword today. And and here he he really eviscerates that idea by saying, hey, you know, if you know, how, 
how, how do you explain the fact that, say, Nigerians, you know, he's using Nigerians as an example, how is it that they, Nigerians in the United States, actually have um, stronger economic, uh, stronger educational backgrounds, percentage-wise anyway, um, than the average uh, white American? Or, you know, how is it possible that the South, which held slaves, which uh, in the North, which was relatively poor compared to the North, which didn't have slaves? You know, we're constantly told that that uh, America was built on the back of slaves and that, you know, slaves are responsible for, for building the United States. And, and as he notes here, slavery has a really crummy track record for building wealth. You know, you don't build wealth that way. Um, and it, of course, that shouldn't surprise us as Christians, right? Because I mean, slavery is is not Christian. Um, if you want to read a little bit more about slavery, there's a, a wonderful little booklet by um, by John Robbins. It's called um, Christianity and Slavery, and it's an exposition of the Book of Philemon. And if you read through Philemon, I mean, that's that's where you really get some explicit um, detail in the new in the New Testament about um, uh, you know abolishing slavery. You really find that strongest arguments right there in uh, in Philemon, and John Robbins does a brilliant job explaining that. I'm not going to go into that right now, but you may want to check that out. It's a, it's a really great little book. It's in print. You can get it from the Trinity Foundation. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to give you a little bit of flavor of uh, of Walter Williams and his argumentation, and you might also find this interesting too. If you if you're like me and say you you admire love the work of of John Robbins, I'm a huge admirer of John Robbins. I mean, John Robbins is you know I talk about Walter Williams was, was an early influence in in my in shaping my thought. Well, um, John Robbins <laughs> probably did more than anybody else to to really uh, kind of put all the pieces together and and shape my thinking. I mean, I call myself a scripturalist today. Um, and of course, scripturalism was the name that that uh, John Robbins gave to Gordon Clark's philosophy. You know, the idea that the Bible has a systematic monopoly on truth. But you might be interested to know, you know, if, if you're a, a if you're an admirer of John Robbins, that he uh, that John Robbins was was well aware of Walter Williams' work and, and actually admired him quite a bit. And here's a uh, a piece in uh, that was actually written by by John Robbins. It's a review of of one of uh, Walter Williams' books. Um, this was uh, written on the uh, Foundation for Economic Education, FEE. Uh, and at the time, John Robbins was, uh, it was written in 1996, and I believe John Robbins was the editor-in-chief of the Foundation for Economic Education at that time. Uh, John Robbins was very interested in economics, and, and I was always very interested in economics. And of course, part of that interest in economics, a big chunk of that actually came from reading Walter Williams. And so I was so glad to come across uh, a number of years later, John Robbins' work, where he really uh, ties in, you know, and in, in shows how the the economics of freedom is 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 something that you can derive from the scriptures. Um, but writing in 1996, John Robbins is giving a review of of Walter Williams' book, and let me read a little bit of this this to you. Uh, the, the title of it's "Do the Right Thing." That's the title of uh, Walter Williams' book, Keen Insights from a Sound Economist. So John Robbins calls Walter Williams a sound economist. Now, if you know uh, John Robbins, he, there's not a lot of people he would say that about. I mean, John Robbins was a very discriminating, and I mean that as a compliment, um, very discriminating uh, intellect. He's somebody who admired you know, logic and precision of thought. Um, and those are things <laughs> that are fairly, unfortunately, very rare qualities, even among academics in our own day. But he called uh, called Walter Williams a sound economist. So let's read a little bit from uh, John Robbins' review of of Walter Williams here. <clears throat> 
Quote, Dr. Walter Williams, chairman of the Department of Economics at George Mason University in Virginia, a syndicated columnist for the past 15 years, has collected his best newspaper columns from 1990 to 1994, sorted them into seven categories, and published them under the title, Do the Right Thing. Young Walter Williams grew up in North Philadelphia housing project in the 1930s and 40s. He thanks his, uh, who having been abandoned, hmm, Looks like the sorry, the words are a little bit cut off here. Oh, here we go. Let me stretch this out here. Young Walter Williams grew up in a North Philadelphia housing project in the in the nineteen thirties and forties. He thanks his mother, who, having been abandoned by her husband, raised two children by herself through difficult times. She is the one who gave me a spirit of rebelliousness and taught me hard lessons about independence and discipline. He later went on to earn his doctorate in economics from UCLA. Dr. Williams also thanks Providence that enabled him to have teachers in high school and professors in college who didn't give a damn about what color I was and held me accountable to high standards. The title Do the Right Thing reflects Dr. Williams' political philosophy in two important respects. It is not enough to think the right thing, though all right action must start with right thinking, it is necessary to do, to act. Faith without works is mere lip service. Second, when one does act, one must do the right thing, the moral thing, not the expedient thing or the politic thing. Dr. Williams sees the source of American decline in the 20th century as moral rot in both our private lives and our public institutions. In an age of philosophical moral relativism, the BOMFOG, the ubiquitous and false platitudes about unity and the brotherhood of man, and fatherhood of God, Dr. Williams' honesty and analysis may be painful for some delicate souls. Regardless of whose sensibilities are offended, he writes, I do not hesitate to call the things as I see them. Why? Because I care about our country and fear for its future as a free and prosperous nation. More importantly, Dr. Williams cares about the truth. Williams is controversial, but then anyone worth listening to is controversial. Long before William Sapphire thought the character thought of characterizing Hillary Clinton as a congenital liar, Williams recognized the political class, especially Congress, as charlatans, either ignorant or contemptuous of the Constitution. Williams does not exaggerate. As one who worked on Capitol Hill for several years, I can attest to the accuracy of his observation. About the only thing sure to call forth more ridicule on the floor of Congress than a serious reference to the Constitution is a serious reference to the Bible as the Word of God. That means, of course, that many congressmen cannot do the right thing since they do not know or do not want to know what the right thing is. And uh, um, John uh, John Roberts continues, describes the book a little bit. I'll just, just read you the, the closing paragraph here as well. Uh, maybe the closing two paragraphs. One of Dr. Williams' most important essays is one in which he defends the founders of America at the time of the Constitution against the charge that they were defenders of slavery. Williams quotes several, including Thomas Jefferson, James Otis, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. Typical was the statement of Madison that slavery was, quote, a barbarous policy, end quote. Dr. Williams brings to his analysis of contemporary issues the keen insights of a sound economist. He explains why businesses are in favor of regulations. It's to keep down competition. Why the self-esteem movement is so pernicious. It stifles effort and achievement. Why a balanced budget is not enough. Taxes and spending at today's levels are legalized theft. There's hardly a significant and contemporary topic that Williams doesn't discuss in this book. It is well worth reading, and Dr. Williams is well worth listening to.
So that was John Robbins' 1996 review of Walter Williams' book titled Do the Right, <coughs> Do the right Thing. And, you know, actually, I don't think I have that book. Um, <coughs> I looked at it on Amazon. I think I'm going to have to they get a copy of that. Because I'm sure that uh, it's got a lot of uh, a lot of great stuff in it. So, anyway, so that uh, that about wraps things up for today. I wanted to just say thank you very much uh, for listening. I I hope you enjoyed um, the uh, discussion here of of Walter Williams. I I think Walter Williams is uh, was uh, really just a a wonderful exemplar of of what. Um, of good academics, you know, he, the, you know, that he's a man who who used his intellect, used the, his God given talents um, to teach and and to teach truth, and and I know that he he touched a lot of lives and including a lot of people he never knew. I mean, as I said, I, I never knew him personally, but I admired so much his work for many years, and and I have benefited so much um, from the work that he did. So, um, I, I really wanted to use this as an opportunity to just, as I said, as a sort of a, a way of, of publicly thanking, saying thank you to him, um, for, for the work, uh, for the work that he did. And I, I'm sure that his work will, uh, will live on for, for many years to come, especially among all those, uh, those of us who, who love and, and cherish liberty, uh, and truth. So, uh, in closing, I just wanted to say, again, thanks very much for listening. I, I really do appreciate that. Um, if you, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to post this. this is, I'm going to post this as a, as a podcast episode. So I'm going to post this out on, my, out on my blog. I'm also going to post it on Thorn Crown Ministries. So if you get a chance, come check out my blog. It's, it's a Lux Lucet. That's L-U-X-L-U-C-E-T dot M-E. It's a, it's a WordPress blog. Uh, it's, uh, I've had it out there. And goodness, it's hard to believe now. I guess it's almost going on 12 years. My you know, where's the time go? Um, so I'm going to post it out there. Also, I'm going to go ahead. Uh, I'm going to post that to my Twitter account. So you can go ahead and follow me on Twitter. Uh, check me out on Facebook. Uh, also, as I said, I'm going to post this out on the uh, Thorn Crown Ministry website. Thorn Crown Ministries is a uh, uh, organization that was started by a couple of friends of mine, uh, Tim Shaughnessy and Carlos Montillo. And I'm, I'm going to post that out there. And, and if you get a chance, go out and uh, check out the Thorn Crown Ministry as well. They've got a lot of great stuff on there. There's um, the, the, the website itself hosts a number of different podcasts. It also has a place where uh, a number of uh, us contributors uh, put uh, put blog articles as well. So uh, so go check that out. There's a, a lot of great stuff on the Thorn Crown Ministries website. Also, too, uh, I just wanted to mention when I, I post this on my my uh, my blog, I do have a donations um, box on there. If you find that you enjoy this work and you get something out of it, please consider making a donation as well uh, to help uh, to support me and, and the work that I do. Thanks again so much for listening. I, I really do appreciate that and appreciate your support. And until next time, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word. Good night, everybody. <laughs>